Hey, I'm Pop Runkle, and for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts stories. Because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's seeing driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. Words cannot describe how amazing this conversation you are about to hear is. Francois Clemens. You might recognize him as, well, Officer Clemens on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And we talk a lot about that, his life growing up, diversity and inclusion, and a lot more. I could talk a whole lot more about how amazing this conversation was, but... I kind of want to just get into it. Enjoy it. This one is a memorable one. One for the record book. Hit it. For those that don't know you, and I can't imagine not a lot of people that don't know you, but could you kind of introduce yourself, who you are and what you've done? Well, uh, I, since I feel like I have a relationship with you, Bob, I basically want to tell who I really am, and then we'll talk about some of the roles that I've done. I am Francois, Dr. Francois Clemens, Francois Scarborough Clemens. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, way back in 1945, and my family moved to Youngstown, Ohio, when I was five years old in 1950, and I really grew up in the Midwest. But my family had such a uh, link, such a contact to the South, that I almost feel like I was raised in the South. Because the church we went to, people were from Tuscaloosa, Birmingham, Montgomery. And so it had a real Southern flavor to it. And uh, in addition to my mother, there was my Aunt Hattie, my Aunt Clara, my Aunt Emma. There were a whole bunch of them who uh, eventually had immigrated to um to the north to work. Uh, the husbands worked in the steel factories and automobile and that sort of thing. While uh, they worked, my mother worked cleaning uh, people's homes uh, in order to earn money. Uh, there were four of us kids. And I went to a, a wonderful school called Elm Street School and then went to Hayes Junior High. And I graduated from Rayan School where I'm still in touch with some of my good buddies from Rand School in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, from there, I went to Oberlin College. I, I uh, had a voice teacher in Youngstown and with his guidance and help and the guidance of a social worker and my high school music teacher, I managed to get a scholarship to Oberlin College. And then when I got in, I studied with the great Ellen Rep, a great voice teacher and uh, graduated in 1967. And from there, I went to Pittsburgh I studied with uh, uh, Lee Cass. And during that time, I had a church job at Third Presbyterian Church. 
That's where I met Fred Rogers. I did a program, All American Negro Spirituals. It's so ironic at this time of the year. It was an Easter situation, Good Friday, that I proposed to the organist and the uh, minister of the church that I do a program of American Negro Spirituals where I would sing uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 spirituals. But they would recite passages from the Bible of Jesus' uh, suffering and his encounter with Pilate and various other, uh, and Judas and all that. And there are spirituals that talk about those things. And uh, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified? My Lord. He's beautiful. So I sang uh, uh, several spirituals like that. And it was evidently deeply touching, not only to Fred Rogers, to everybody who showed up. And they came up and they congratulated me. And it's almost like I was off and running because Fred Rogers said, I, I want to see you again. Can we plan a meeting? And uh, I can hear you sing some more spirituals. And I have a television program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, it's for children, but I think it would be very, very special for you to come on my program and sing American Negro spirituals. So that's what I did. Now, that, that's a thumbnail because there's so much else uh, that I did. And Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is not all I'm known for. I got a Grammy for recording uh, Porgy and Bess by George Gershwin with the uh, Cleveland Orchestra under Lauren Mazel, And it won a Grammy uh, for the best classical record. I think it was 1975, so it was ancient history. Nevertheless, I launched my career from there. I, I sang all over the country, including Spain and Vienna and uh, Berlin. All over the world, I began to do concerts and uh, productions of Porgy and Bess. And so that's, I did that for a while. When I came back to America, because of a set of circumstances, I started the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. And I sang with them for about 23 years. I was the founder and the director and the arranger and the money guy. I did everything that was necessary. And I practically drove myself ragged trying to manage such a uh, unique uh, uh, organization that was trying to make a living just singing American Negro spirituals. Well, it took about two years for us to launch it. But once we were launched, my goodness, we were singing all over this country and touring all over Europe, including Italy, Spain, France, Germany, etc. And went to Asia, sang a number of times in uh, Korea and, uh, and also Hong Kong and Japan. So you see, I spent 20 years plus touring and sometimes I was so tired. You leave one airplane and get on another one. You travel three or four hours on one. You get off and you have to ride a, a, a car or, or some transportation for two or three hours. 
You get to the hotel at one or two o'clock in the morning, you're exhausted. And then you have to get up early the next morning. Well, if there were performances for children, it would be eight or nine o'clock a.m. That is not enough sleep for me. And then uh, from there, you have to prepare yourself for a complete performance that evening usually. And uh, so it was a little bit vigorous, but we achieved something that in my opinion had never been done before. And that is a group of black artists, uh, very professional, sang American Negro Spirituals full time. We were a paid ensemble of professional artists who toured all over America and Europe and what have you. And uh, my singers earned an honorable living. Now they didn't get rich at $100,000 a flip or something, but they earned a very, very good living. I'm very proud of the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. But after that, I began to get sick, uh, the traveling and the stress. So uh, about, tw um, about 19, let's see, uh, 2020, uh, I got an offer to come up here to Middlebury College from the president and several members who had heard us sing on our New England tour. And I accepted that invitation. It took a couple of years to finish up the contracts uh, with the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. But we arranged it, we did it. And when I came here, I conducted the Middlebury College Choir. And during that time, I started a chorus called the Martin Luther King Jr. Choir because they were not celebrating Dr. King's holiday when I arrived here, nothing that I knew about. And so I started a celebration and I invited students to tell their friends and parents to come. And lo and behold, that was the beginning of a major uh, college uh, a presentation in January. Every year that I was here, I was here 23 years. And um, I, I eventually conducted a choir of some uh, uh, 100 people up on stage whom I had rehearsed and begged and pleaded and, and uh, pushed and, and everything to get them to come to rehearsals. And eventually it really, really, really paid off. Uh, people still ask me about it when they see me. And there are those who miss those good old days, but uh, there was a certain problem uh, involved. And that is everybody in Vermont's always saying, oh, I can't sing, oh, I can't sing. And I would say, oh yes, you can, come to rehearsals. And I would <clears throat> tell them, it doesn't matter. No one's gonna hear you anyway, because there's so many people and I'm going to be out front. So we made a big joke of that. And sure enough, I cajoled and teased a lot of people to sing. It was a dream that they always wanted to do, but they couldn't audition and they were shy. So that those first uh, years of the choir, I was amazed. I had like 25, 30 introverts and I'm trying to pull it out of them, get them to give the music and give their talent away. Yeah, it's funny because what I like to call myself is an introverted extrovert because like <laughs> there are parts of me like doing this podcast or doing what I do here. It's like I'm open, but if you get me with a group of people, I'm just like, what, what do I do? <laughs> what, how do I? Well, the thing is you, you just be yourself. Yeah. Whatever that is. And uh, I enjoy meeting people. So going out and meeting people and chatting uh, about what I'm doing, I love what I'm doing. So I, I'm not in a lack of words, as you can see. I can do a monologue or a soliloquy anytime. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, of course, most people know you, your time in the neighborhood. But 
what I wanted to bring up specifically about the neighborhood is there are many ways to say I love you. Because I know that moment means a lot to you. And would you like to give a little bit of a backstory of... Well, um, at that time, around 1968, there were uh, incidences all over America. Memphis, Nashville, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, Birmingham, Montgomery, all of these cities in urban uh, urban uh, environments were uh, refusing to let black people swim in the, uh, the city municipal swimming pools, which mean they were run by the cities. And they were supported by taxpayers' dollars. And so it didn't make sense that a taxpayer could not come to the swimming pool with their child, three years old, four-year-old baby, and splash around in the pool. They were putting in some powder and some chemicals that were causing the kids to have rashes and uh, itching. I thought it was very, very cruel. And I went to Fred and I lamented to him, Fred. What can we do about this thing? That's, it's all over America. In fact, in Pittsburgh, they didn't want me swimming in the local municipal swimming pool out near the zoo. So uh, I talked with Fred several times, and he promised me he would see what he could do. And so when he presented this script to me that had the song, There Are Many Ways to Say I Love You, I thought, well, where's the rest? What's going on? We're just going to be sitting down in a baby pool, wet, uh, wetting our feet and talking. We need to get some guns, though. We need to get go down there with some protesters and say, you can't do this. This is not proper. It's not acceptable. And Fred was very low key, but he was very intense and he was fully uh, involved. And he said, I've written this script, Francois. I think it'll make a big difference when we sit together as friends and we talk and we share. So I put my objections aside and we went to the studio and we filmed and I sang, there are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways. Many ways to say I love you. And while I was sitting in the with my feet in the in the water, there was a mystic quiet in the studio. There have been times when they had to be quiet, of course, but this was different. And Fred said, Come in and sit here and Put your feet in the water with me and get, cool yourself off, Officer Clemens. And I said, okay, I can have a few minutes, uh, and then I must go back to work. And I was beguiled, if, if I can use that word in a positive sense. I had no idea how profound the fact that a black man and a white man were putting our feet in the same baby pool. In addition to putting our feet in the baby pool, I didn't have a towel. And I remember saying, Fred, I don't have a towel. And without a, missing a beat, he said, you can use my towel. And he reached around and pulled the towel out. And when I started drying my feet, lo and behold, Fred started drying my feet 
helping me also. Oh, well, beautiful. I had no idea of the biblical implications of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples in the upper room uh, and uh, how they said they didn't want that because he was the teacher and he was uh, venerated by them. And washing dirty feet, they would never ask him to do that, never. And so there they were. He said, if I can't dry your feet, wash your feet, you are not my disciples. And that was a robust rejection by his circumstances. And they really, really uh, took that to heart. It was awful the thought that they were not going to be with him. So they uh, allowed him to wash their feet and dry their feet, each one after the other. And then when he got to Peter, he asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, well, they say you are Elijah reincarnated and several other names. And then they said you are uh, the Christ, Jesus, the, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, my father, which is in heaven, has revealed this to you. It's not something casual in the air. This was a special moment. And he said, on this rock, Petra, which was Peter's name, meant rock. On this rock, I will build my church, and the very gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, when the people come to my house, they ask me, what do you mean by the rock? What, did, what was Jesus saying to Peter? Do you understand the deep uh, 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 implications uh, from the Bible and, and uh, theological discussion? And I said, well, I have a very good idea because I've been discussing it for 25 years. And the more I discussed it, the more mystical it seems that Fred Rogers is a Christ figure and I serve as a, uh, a substitute for Peter, the rock. I say a substitute because there were so many things about Peter that he was a low-class fisherman, a rough guy who didn't take a shower every day and didn't use deodorant and stuff. And so it was a gruff bunch of disciples and fishermen, ex-fishermen. Well, I looked at myself and I said, look at Francois. You were born in the ghetto of uh, Birmingham and lived in Tuscaloosa, moved up to Youngstown. You were raised by a single mother. You're black, you're gay. You have no uh, pedigree, so to speak. And you have no money. You're, you're a st struggling student. And Fred Rogers chose that image to say, maybe this is love come to, to us. Maybe this is what he was saying unto all of them, that there was a deep love and spirituality. I, I interpret it as it's everybody. It's not just white people. It's not just Jews at that time who were the Christians. Was also the Gentiles, and frankly, people all over the world. And it was a very, very generous interpretation, but it stopped me in my tracks. And I feel that Fred laid a, a cloak of love and anointment on me that I have been carrying ever since. He is uh, in my thoughts. I wrote a book called Officer Clemens, and I talk about my love for him 
and our experiences. I'm writing a second book now. Uh, it has a tentative title of Why People Pray. I have no idea what it's going to end up, but it's a, uh, a bunch of uh, articles or, or uh, uh, you know, you write uh, an article of about 20 pages and then you want to focus on something else and so you write another one. So I have about eight or nine and uh, I'm hoping to publish those. Uh, well, I just want to tell you that the, your ability to express and to communicate is a gift that <laughs> a lot of people don't have. Let's be fake. Let's be real. They don't take the time to listen. They don't take the time to like understand the impact that others have on them. But you and I are just talking and communicating and it is so special. And I feel like Fred would have been a wonderful guest for this show. He oh my well. goodness, yes. <laughs> yes, but you two introverts may not have been saying very much. <laughs> he would have loved it, I think. I honestly think that Fred would have loved this program because it's all about expression and how, despite your obstacle, you can do anything and still have fun too. Like, he was a big kid. People see him like this, this, this larger than life figure, which he was, but he was a big kid at heart. You would see him playing with trains and doing... And playing with his puppets. Yes. So, like, when you came on the show, did it kind of change your outlook on how you embrace life? Like, how how did being on the show and being there impact you? Well, uh, yes, it had a tremendous impact on me. And uh, first, it helped me to understand unconditional love, which I had been missing in my life as a boy growing up in a very, very violent household. household. And so being with around this man, with his kindness, his empathy, his caring, his grace, made me look at him differently. It made me question some of the things that I, I grew up uh, thinking about and doing. Yes, it had a tremendous impact on me because I learned also that I was lovable. Uh, knowing that somebody loved you and was going to stand beside you come hell or high water, no matter what the difficulties were, meant more than I have words to express to me. He gave me unconditional love. And he said to me, if you need me, Francois, I will be there. He, he as they say, talk the talk, and he walked the walk. And so I found a man who embraced me as family and who helped me to understand that my color wasn't what it was all about that deep inside of both of us, we had a soul, a spirit. And that was the thing that brought us here and would carry us to the next uh, time that we're uh, evolved to. And so in that process, I understood that white people were not all bad. 
They were not all going to take advantage of me. Uh, they were not all rich or educated. I began to see people in a different light. And I, too, began to relate to people in a different way. And two things I want to mention. First of all, Fred helped me to understand the importance of the little children. As you can imagine, my heart is torn right now. I'm bleeding with the bombings, not only in Nashville, but the other activities that are going on in our society involving guns. And the idea that people can go in and buy guns and then come out and shoot little children is more sometimes than I can bear. I sit by myself and I love and I cry and I imagine what Fred Rogers would be doing if he were here. It's almost as if we're going backward. Oh, it's, it's so inhumane what we're doing. And then you have people, I don't know this, but I think they love the guns and stuff more than they love the life of those babies. Maybe one or two or three of their babies would have to be shot before they would say, no more. We don't need, I, nobody wants to do that, of course. But it's that, that kind of picture that, oh, those are somebody else's kids. Those are not my kids. Or that's happening in another neighborhood. That's not happening in my neighborhood. So that's one serious uh, uh, issue that I'm dealing with now uh, here in, uh, I live in Vermont. It's a wonderful state, every way you can imagine, except for the snow. I'm not a snow person. So I wind up spending a lot of time inside. I call my, I, over there I have my writing cave and I spend time sitting and thinking, pondering and writing uh, paragraphs and uh, essays, ideas on what I'm thinking and feeling. And I imagine Fred Rogers here with me uh, probably 95% of the time. I carry a presence, a gift from this man that I want to share with the world. So when I sing, I'm giving them the gift that I got from Fred Rogers. And I started a project called 400 Years. 400 years is an imaginary uh, limit of time from 1600 to 1900, where we had slavery in America. And during that time, the American Negro spiritual was created and evolved from the pain and suffering and grief of black people. And I've made a career, it seems, from sharing this American experience. And so everywhere I go, I tell people the truth that we came here as slaves. And I share with them that there's no uh, harm in knowing the truth, but there is harm in denying the truth. Our so-called forefathers were all white, all men, who put together our constitution. Uh, we the people uh, come together to form this imperfect union that all men shall have uh, the power you know to uh, seek uh, the, the better things in life and they didn't mean women and they did not mean poor white men and they certainly did not mean black men and women and I think about that with um, stuff going on and people are talking about the second amendment well the second amendment did not include black people at all I'd be willing to say the entire Constitution did not. Uh, they were wealthy guys who had the pleasure of sitting around thinking and writing 
and uh, some of it is borderline flowery, but nevertheless, it's how they felt and what they were trying to do. They were almost all slave owners. So they didn't have to do the day-to-day -day activities. And during this experience, the slaves sang. They sang of their grief and their suffering. And I feel that I have been handed this anointment to share the meaning and the essence, the substance of these great, this great song literature. In my opinion, it's almost magic that out of this pain and suffering emerged this unique artistic expression, the American Negro spiritual. And no matter where I go in the world, I'm aware, and people tell me, we talk, there's no other literature on the folk music on the same level as these American Negro spirituals. So you feel like it's your kind of duty to keep this art form alive? Alive, yeah. I do. I do. And so I sing everywhere. I, I, I'm doing a performance tomorrow for some young children in one of the local schools. And I did one on Monday at another local school. And it's uh, for the four-year-olds and the five-year-olds. And they have so much energy. Lord have mercy, those children. <laughs> and in addition to talking about who I am, what I am, and they're all white and I'm black. And uh, they we put our legs together so they can see the difference in our color, our hands. And then we sang spirituals. And some of those children, one little girl in particular, oh, does she ever sing? And she celebrated. And that's what I do when I'm with the kids. I celebrate the joy of spending time with them and listening to them tell me like they did Fred Rogers. I don't pee to bed anymore. I'm not wearing diapers. Mr. Clemens, Officer Clemens, look, I don't have a diaper on today. It's absolutely wonderful. And it's also humbling. It's very, very humbling that they come to me and I say after about 15 minutes, we are no longer strangers. They are, they want to sit on my lap. They want to touch me, my beard and all. And they want to sing with me. We sing together. Uh, we did Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And I was just wonderfully inspired by their participation. And then we sang another, another we, well, they sang Old Lang Zion. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Oh, when all acquaintance be forgot, la da da. And they were in tune. And I sang with them a little bit because I don't always know those words. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. And I think about the role I had on Mr. Rogers and how it's opened so many doors for me to communicate. And those kids told me, my mommy, my daddy put on Mr. Rogers. I heard you in the opera Bubble Land. I heard you in the opera about a, a Spoon Mountain. And so the legacy of Fred Rogers, in my opinion, humble as that is, it's still very much alive today. Absolutely. I think even more so now because of <laughs> that, that documentary that came out. All, because as a child with a disability, there weren't many places that showcased diversity and inclusion in my area of, you know, what I go through. But then you see a child in a wheelchair talking to Mr. Roderick, and it's like, 
Deck me. Deck me. And when you and I spoke too long ago, I just felt this this connection to you. Like I felt like we'd known each other for years. Well, I feel very close to you too. When I saw the request uh, to do something again, I told Elizabeth, "Yes, please uh, let them know that I'd be very happy." To be with them again, you, him, them, and uh, we'll schedule it as soon as possible. Uh, I have to tell you, I'm carrying uh, the weight in my heart of uh, uh, Palm Sunday is coming up on Sunday and then Easter, because that was one of those times I was very close with Fred Rogers, and uh, that service that I sang, I repeated services like that over the years, and several times it was because. He recommended me to churches or preachers or musicians, musical directors, and they asked me to come in. And I was busy with them during that, during the uh, Easter season. So Easter was a wonderful resurrection of my career and a time to be thoughtful about the care. And I really mean that, the care. People say, Fred Rogers said, be kind, be kind, be kind. And that was the way he related to me, and that was the way I related to him. Now, sometimes I was more, uh, 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 you know, up, roused up, and he would listen. <laughs> he would listen calmly and patiently to what had what was disturbing me because the civil rights era was very, very much uh, uh, going on at that time, and it was uh, April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight when Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh my God, what a disaster. What a, uh, it's like dropping the A-bomb on my head. And uh, I remember that there were riots all over the country in all the major cities, every single one. Uh, there were riots, including Pittsburgh. And Fred Rogers came to my house and said, come, you must come with me because we don't know, there were fires downtown and there was shooting. And he said, this is not where you should be. You needed to be in a safe place. And I insist, he insisted. He was helping me pack, <laughs> and, you know, moving me along. Come on, let's get this done. Throw in some, another pair of shoes or, or several pairs of underwears and stuff. Let's go get this shirt. You need some shirts. You'll need another pair of pants. I mean, he was that basic. That's daddy. That's how I look upon him as daddy. And he helped to show. It wasn't about color. It's what was in my heart and what was in his heart. And he helped me pack. And we carried that suitcase down those stairs and put them in the back of the car. And we sat in the car. And he took me to his house, to his home, and said, you must stay here. And you must stay here until it's safe for you to go back to your apartment. And so we listened to the radio. We just had some very, very deep thoughts about Dr. King and read from his I Have a Dream and his uh, letter from the Birmingham jail. There are lots of quotes, and Fred had several books. And I remember uh, I had a bedroom up on the third floor. I remember he came up to the bedroom, and we sat almost in silence, but we did make commentary about what was going on and the fact that it was affecting people in Pittsburgh and 
Chicago and Milwaukee and Cleveland. There was all this almost suicidal response to the anger and the, the fact that he was murdered. He was uh, assassinated. And we felt helpless. That was the other thing I, I said to Fred. I feel so helpless. What can we do? And so I stayed with him for about a week or so. And then it was safe to go out again. It, the police had restored order and put the fires out. And uh, people were beginning to talk about changes that needed to be in Pittsburgh. And of course, that same process was going on in cities across America, even to Los Angeles. And so um, I remember this time with Fred, April 4th, when uh, all hell broke loose and his calmness and his understanding that he said, yes, I understand why. I just don't agree with what they did. And we must work so that that doesn't happen again. Oh, if if he were still here, he would be just distraught and outraged. He would be grieving. Fred would be grieving. Yeah. And he would be in pain just as I am right now. Well, I hope that this conversation can bring a little bit of just happiness and some levity to yes what we're going through. Because when I have these conversations, I don't intend to impact the person on the other end. But if I could change the person's mind about something at any point during our conversation or enlighten them a little bit, then I've done my job. Amen. I agree. Also, it's a very humbling experience to give like this. And you pray that somebody will benefit from the experience. Uh, I've been blessed to have people around me who help me accomplish what I do. Uh, I have me memory problems, quite frankly. I've had two strokes, and I've had both of my knees replaced and other ailments when I was on uh, uh, dialysis for about nine months. So I really think that I'm on extended time. That's what I say. And so during this extended time, because Fred lived to be 74, and I'll be 78 next month. And so I really, really look upon this experience as a time to share his legacy and to sing the American Negro spirituals, which he loved very, very much. I can remember being with him sometimes when he would say, Francois, could you sing a little bit of a spiritual, right? You know, there is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the senses. Sometimes I feel discouraged. 
And I think my work in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a bond in Gilead to make the wood There is a bond in Gilead. To heal the sin, sin, soul. Wow. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're so welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you again. And maybe I'll be with you again if you want me to come back in August or September. You. We've got time. I've got a couple more questions for you. All right, all right. I'm ready. So, the last time you and I spoke, I asked you if you had any questions for me. Because when I started this podcast 13 years ago, I never spoke about my disability on this podcast at all. I never wanted it to be the focus of this podcast. But then once I started highlighting it, it created a dialogue between myself and the guest and created a conversation that they wouldn't otherwise have. So, I appreciate you listening to my story and kind of being there with me on this journey because it is so amazing and it's an honor to call you my friend. We're friends. Amen. I am definitely a friend. And one day when I come to Pittsburgh, I want to see you. Well, I'm in New York, so. Oh, you're in, where about? Long Island. Long Island? Oh, where in Long Island? Like, the Suffolk County area, like. Oh, my goodness, you know, I lived in Manhattan for 35 years. And so I feel that a lot of, uh, New York is still in me. I'm a New York Yankee baseball fan, for example. Oh, I'm Mech. Uh, well, I like the Mets, too. I actually do. And they were my first team. But they went through a difficult period when I deserted them. And I moved over to the Yankees. I used to take the train, number seven, and go out to Shea Stadium to see the Mets. And then now I cha- I changed it over years ago. So I took the D train uptown, and I would see the Yankees and Yankee Stadium. And uh, nevertheless, today is the first day of the baseball season. I know. I'm going to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> so you... I mean, you've had several interviews and you've talked about pretty much everything in your book there is to know. But what is something that you wish people knew about you? Uh, I've been thinking about that too because I'm not a young kid anymore. And uh, sometimes when I'm weak, I think, well... It's coming to a close, Francois. You're not a 29 or 30-year-old 
lively person anymore. And there's some mornings when it takes me longer to get up. So I started working on this legacy project called 400 Years. And I do want, I hope that you'll tell people about it. Uh, I'm at francoisclemens.net. francoisclemens.net is my uh, website. And people can get more information on that website about my desire to leave a uh, like a, a CD or some kind of recording that will share with the world my love of the American Negro spiritual. And I have several people here helping me. And I have a wonderful accompanist, uh, Ronnie uh, Romano, who plays beautifully. So I've been working with Ronnie on some arrangements. But I don't, I've never had in my 50 year something career, I've never had a solo album. I sang, obviously, when I did, um, uh, when I did uh, Sporting Life with the Cleveland Orchestra. But I have never had my own album where I could share my deep love and passion for the American Negro spiritual. So that's what I'm working on right now. And that's what I want people to know about. And email me or you and ask about it. Because um, we're hoping that people will have an album to purchase. And, and, of, and of course, your book is still available if people yes. want to grab that as well. Officer Clemens has done very, very well. And I'm very grateful. I give praise all the time. And I'm also excited about the second book that the tentative working title, as they call them, is Why Do People Pray So Much? Why Do Black People Pray So Much? And um, I'm working on that. I don't pretend to have the answer, but I have some of the answers. And I'm getting a deeper understanding of what prayer is and how it changes us. Well, let me be honest here. This has been such a joy having you here. And you always have a place here. And I think I think Fred would be happy to hear me say this. I love you. And I love you too. And I know that Fred would be there to say the same thing. Because I feel him all around me today. When I started uh, reaching out to you, I felt a certain presence. I can't describe what it is, but I say that it's Fred's essence and his spirit blessing us and sending us unconditional love. Thank you. You are so welcome.